Let's grab our Bibles. We're going to spend our time this morning in Colossians 1 and verse 23. Colossians 1, 23. And if you're a guest with us for the first time, whether you're here in the room or online, welcome home. We're glad you're here. And maybe you're visiting for the game weekend. We're especially glad, glad you're here. But wouldn't it be better to just move here and live here year-round? We'd love to have you at Central. And we come to the Word each week because no matter where we find ourselves, in the highs or the lows of life, God meets us in His Word. And this morning we're also going to be partaking of the Lord's Supper. And in that family meal, as we gather together as a church family, God meets us in that moment. Well, as you probably saw last week, the World Series came to a conclusion which wrapped up probably the most unusual Major League Baseball season of all time. It was a shorter season, players took pay cuts. There were a lot of things that were different about it, but for the New York Mets, there were two things that were the same. The first is that they finished at the bottom of the NL East, as usual. But the second is that they cut a check for over a million dollars to a player that never saw the field even one time the entire season. As a matter of fact, this particular player uh, ranked number seven in terms of the highest paid players as position players on the team, even though he never played an inning. And that's true because he hasn't played an inning of baseball for the Mets for the last 20 years, and he's 57 years old. And yet this year they still wrote a $1 million check to him. It's a man by the name of Barry Bond, or Barry, uh, Bobby Bonilla, not Barry Bonds, Bobby Bonilla. <laughs> Bobby Bonilla played for the Mets in the late 90s. He was a perennial all-star, a, a big slugger, but at the end of his contract, the Mets had had enough with him. They wanted to move him on, but they didn't want to pay for it. And so seeing an opportunity, Bonilla and his lawyer came up with some crafty language to insert in the contract. Some fine print, if you will. You know the fine print. It's that hidden language that often changes the nature of the contract, but is usually overlooked. And what they did is they said, I'll tell you what, we'll take no money from you, even though you owe us over $5 million, we'll take no money for you, from you over the next 10 years. But then starting in 2010, what the contract called for is that every year from 2010 to 2035, for those 25 years, the Mets have to write him the same check for over a million dollars each of those years. So if they had just paid them off in the moment, it would have been about $5 million. But by the time we get to the end of it in 2035, when he is 72 years old, they will have paid him cumulatively nearly $30 million. See, the fine print can change the nature of a relationship. It can change the nature of what is happening. And when we come to Colossians 1.23 this morning, it almost feels like we're getting the fine print of the gospel. If you remember last week, we talked about verses 22 and 23, the way that in Christ God has reconciled us to himself. A reconciliation that happens in a moment. It's certain. It's sudden. And then we come to this text that we're about to read in Colossians 1.23, and it looks like there's fine print here, that there's strings attached, that Paul is changing the nature of our relationship with God. And what we want to wrestle with this morning is whether or not that's actually what's occurring. So look at what he says there in verse 23. He says, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, became a minister. So remember, last week we talked about how in Christ, God reconciles us in a moment but now Paul is going to turn his attention to how 
Through Christ, God is changing our lives throughout our entire lifetime. And let's not look over verse 23. It seems almost at the first like it might be insignificant that Paul is just wrapping up the first part of his text and making a bridge to the next portion. But in this verse, this call to perseverance, this call to pressing on in the faith is going to raise for us ideas that we see flow throughout the book of Colossians through the rest of our study. And what we're going to find this morning is that as Paul unpacks the gospel, he's going to show us how we are called to have an unwavering faith in an unchanging gospel. So notice how it begins there, beginning in verse 23. He says, if indeed you continue in the faith. See, Paul had a concern about the Colossian church. They were facing external persecution and internal pressure from false teachers. It could have been easy in that circumstance for them to walk away from it all to no longer press on in the faith, but instead, Paul is calling them to perseverance in the midst of persecution, to stability in the face of hostility. And he starts off this text with this word, if. It's a small word, but it has big significance in the text today. What's the nature of this if? What does Paul have in mind there? Is he unsure about our faith? Is he raising questions about our spiritual future? Is he even raising the idea that we can lose our salvation. Well, there have been some people throughout the history of the church that have believed exactly that, that you can indeed lose your salvation, that even if you experience the saving grace of God, it can be gone before you die, and you would then stand in judgment before the Lord. Now, for some people, they think of that in the way kind of like a Netflix account where you can keep it as long as you want, but if you're done with it, you can walk away. That's the way they see their faith. Or for others, they might think of it more like an airline rewards program where you've got to do a certain amount of things to keep a, a particular status before God. And if you fall below that threshold, you might lose your salvation. Is that what we see right here? When Paul says, if you continue in the faith, is that what he has in mind? I mean, maybe this is an uncertain if. Maybe he's saying, if you can do this, and I really don't think you're going to make it. Kind of like whenever you fill out your bracket during March Madness in the spring, you fill it out and you know chances are you're not going to hit everyone correctly. Is it that kind of if where there's an underlying doubt and uncertainty? Is he saying we can lose our salvation? And, and that's not just a general abstract question that Paul is dealing with with the Colossians. Let's be honest this morning. There's a, those, there are those of you in the room or perhaps gather with us online who constantly wrestle with this question. You struggle for an assurance of your salvation. You doubt your standing before God. And maybe that's because when you look back at the nature of your decision to follow Christ, you wonder if it was real. Or you find yourself in a season of disobedience or doubt, and it makes you wonder if you are good enough for God to still accept is that what Paul is saying here? That we can just walk away from it all? Well, it seems to me, not just from what we'll see in this text, but through a, throughout the entire New Testament, that the Bible is abundantly clear. That those that God rescues, he keeps. That there is an assurance of our salvation. So just listen to these words. If you want to write it down in your notes, Philippians 1.6, where Paul says to us, and I am sure of this, 
that he who began a good work in you will carry it to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. If you know Christ as your Savior, God has committed to carrying you to the finish line. And it gets even better than that. Romans 8, 39 tells us that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And did you know what? That includes your doubts. That includes your uncertainty. If you have met Jesus in a saving way, if his spirit has taken residence in your heart, then there is an assurance and a confidence that you can have. And so if that's true, then what does Paul mean here? When he uses the word if, if it's not an uncertain if, then perhaps what Paul is doing is giving us an unwavering if. What he is saying there instead is, if you continue in the faith, and I'm sure that you will. There is a sense of confidence. And how do we know that to be the case? If you look later on in your book of Colossians, turn to chapter 2 and verse 5, and look at what he says there about them. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Do you see it? He celebrates that firmness, the stability, that perseverance that they're demonstrating. Paul is issuing them a call to press on in the faith, and he uses that phrase, continue in the faith. The picture here is one of remaining, of staying, of a a sense of persevering and persisting. A lot of times it would be used in a context where someone stays in a location regardless of the circumstances. So this is the soldier that won't abandon his post when the enemy comes against him. It's the beach house homeowner who stays with the home when the hurricane's about to hit. There's a sense of commitment that's there regardless of the circumstances, and Paul is calling us to that continuing in the faith. And the theological term for this idea is known as the perseverance of the saints. And here's what it is, very simply. Those who God calls, he keeps. Those who God saves, he sustains. There is this picture here of a continuance in the faith, this pressing on. And what is happening is that God uses warning passages just like this in Colossians or over in the book of Hebrews that call us to press on in the faith, that warn us about what would happen if we walked away from the faith as one of the means by which he keeps us pressing on. So imagine if your house is anything like mine, it's full of candy that was picked up in the last week. And every house is different, but there are a couple of common ways that kids will handle the Halloween candy when they bring it home. So there's some that are hoarders. When they get there, they section it off to themselves and make sure they keep everybody at arm's length. Nobody can get near it. Then for others, they're the counters. They get home, they dump it out, and they immediately want to know how many they got. Or if they're really type A, they don't just count, they're sorters. They want to organize them by different types of candy. And maybe there's a few out there that are hiders where they're going to go stash some so that they can find them later on and nobody know that, that they are there. Or perhaps there's some traders who may not like one thing and they want to make an exchange with somebody else in order to enhance the the overall quality of their collection of candy. Well, regardless of who is founding your home amongst the kids, I can assure you in most American homes, you can find the same type of parent. And that's the parent who's giving a warning as the kids are enjoying that candy on the first night. If you eat too much candy, what's going to happen? 
You're going to get that stomach ache. You're going to get sick. There's a sense of warning there. Think about where you're going. Think about the decisions you're making now because of how it will affect you in the future. And through that warning, it is causing them to resist the pull in one direction to follow the direction instead of their father. And when Paul speaks here of this warning, if you continue in the faith, there is this sense that the warnings in Scripture empower us to resist the temptation of the evil one and instead to walk in the way of our father, to resist the pull of the enemy around us. And uh, this is something in terms of this endurance that's pressing on that we're not just seeing in the text this morning. In fact, if you join us on Wednesday night, this coming Wednesday at our Gospel for Life class over in the FLC gyms at 6 o'clock, we're going to be speaking more in depth about this exact subject. The way that God sustains us. He empowers our endurance so that we can be faithful in the mission that he's called us to even in the end. And even on a more practical level, I've been here now as your pastor for six months, and one of the things that you've noticed about when we bring our services to a close, every Sunday, the last thing we're going to do is we're going to open this Bible. We're going to hear from God's word and a benediction. And then you're going to hear me say something like that, including just a few minutes from now when we close out this service, central family, keep pressing on. And then I'll give a word of encouragement that comes right out of the text that we read. But the reason that you're going to hear me continue to say week after week after week, keep pressing on, is because of texts just like this one in Colossians 1.23. He talks about continuing in the faith, pressing on, being relentless in our pursuit of Christ. And that's the image that Paul calls us to. He calls us to press on in the faith, but I want you to notice the way the text goes on. He also calls us to stand firm in the faith. So look back there at verse 23. You'll see that he tells us to, uh, he calls us to continue in the faith, stable and steadfast. So you have these two words side by side, stable. This is the idea of a firm foundation, a reliable base and steadfast. This is the image of being an immovable structure. In fact, these are words in the original language that were used for architectural imagery. They spoke about the foundation and the structure. And isn't it fitting that as we've seen in the past couple of weeks, Paul has been laying out how Jesus is the temple of God. He is the place where the presence of God dwells. He is the fulfillment of the temple imagery in scripture. And now when he speaks about you and me and what it looks like to follow after Christ, he uses architectural language that picks up on this temple imagery that we would have both a firm foundation and an unshakable structure, that we would be stable and steadfast. And when this building opened, when I was in college, I remember being here, and then not long after that, I went on staff. And while I was here on staff, we began to notice that in the A-wing, right out here where the student ministry meets, we began to have some problems with the new building. The ground was settling. The foundation wasn't as firm as we had hoped. And so as a result of that, we saw, started to see some cracks and, and problems coming in to the walls. Now, in a situation like that, what we could have done is just... Each time that crack stretched a little bit more, we could have brought in some more plaster and covered it up. We could have put a fresh paint of coat on there. Nobody would have known the, the difference. It would have had the appearance of being fine, even though the reality underneath it wasn't true. 
that's not what we did, right? Instead of hiding that issue, we fixed it. We addressed the underlying issue so that we could restore it to the stable and steadfast structure it was intended to be. But I can't help but wonder this morning, how many of us are pulled to doing that exact same thing in our own lives? We wrestle with anxiety. We hide our sin. And instead of confronting the underlying issues, instead of getting to a restoration of that firm foundation, we plaster it over. We paint it up. We put on the mask. We create the appearance of stability without the reality. When Paul is speaking here of how we are called to continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, the image that he is giving us is, look, we don't know what is going to happen in the world around us. We live in uncertain times. We live in a dangerous war zone between the kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness. And as we face these realities, the call of the gospel for each one of us is to stand firm, clinging to an unwavering faith in uncertain times. But I want you to see the way that this text goes on because in the second half of this verse, Paul is also going to speak to our need to have an unshifting hope in an unchanging gospel. So look at the way he says it there in the second half. Not shifting away from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, have become a minister. So here's what he's saying. Even though we live in a world that is constantly changing, we can always count on the unchanging nature of the gospel. And that he is appealing to us in our lives to have an unshifting hope in that unchanging gospel. You see the word that he says there, that you would not shift away from the hope of the gospel? In the original language, it would have this idea of drifting, departing, moving away. As a matter of fact, in the original language, this is the only time it's used in the New Testament. And of course, Paul would have had this concern about the Colossians. When they're facing that external persecution from a pagan culture around them, resistant to their faith. And when they're encountering that internal pressure from false teachers that are seeking to minimize Jesus and to lead them astray from what the gospel proclaims, there could have been a pull towards a shift away from the hope of the gospel. And he is pleading with them and with us to not lose heart, to not miss the hope that we have in the gospel, that future trust that transforms our present perspective. That's what hope is. Our hope of the gospel is this, that we know in Jesus, God has sent his only son to live and to die on our behalf. He has paid the penalty for the debt that we owed. He has risen from the grave, defeated Satan's sin and death for one thing, so that he might reconcile the world to himself, so that he might restore the broken relationship between us and him. And he invites us in to that rest. He welcomes us into the family. And what happens when that occurs is it fills our hearts with hope, an unshakable hope, one that can look to the future knowing that there is coming a day when Jesus will return and all things will be made new and we will enter into that rest that our weary hearts that are often heavy laden will find rest for our souls. That's the type of hope that Paul speaks of here. And he warns us not to shift away from that hope. 
And, and that should stand out to us in a special way during this election season. So right now, you can't turn on the television or the radio without hearing political ads. You've probably heard more in the last four weeks than the past four years prior to that, since the last election cycle. And the whole purpose of each one of those political advertisements is they're seeking to get you to shift away from your current plans for your vote. To shift away from one candidate to another. To shift away from one policy position to a different one. And oftentimes they're micro-targeting you customizing the way they're reaching out to you in a way that they think might be most effective in getting you to shift away from your existing perspective. Paul is warning us here that Satan does the same thing in our lives. That he is constantly watching. He is waiting and looking at the way that you respond to temptation and he is micro-targeting ways to seek to lead you astray and to keep you from following Christ, ways that might even over time shift you away from the hope that you have in the gospel. And if we're being honest this morning, with the election day coming on Tuesday, this is a time where we'll all be tested about whether or not we will shift away from our hope in the gospel. You probably heard it said during this election cycle, this is the most important election in our lifetime. And there's a sense in which it feels like it is. Think about how much is at stake. The future of our country. The biblical convictions that mean so much to us in terms of protecting life and religious freedom and all of the things that we hold dear as Christians. But what we need to recognize in this moment is that we are faced with a question. When we come to Tuesday night, we know that there are things we likely won't know. We may not even know the winner on Tuesday night. It might take days, even weeks. We don't know if there will be civil unrest or increasing hostility that happens. We don't know those things, but you know what we do know? The Bible has called us to engage the world around us. As citizens of this world, we're called to vote, to participate, to engage in the process, but it changes the way we do it. We don't step into this election day as those who cast ballots out of fear for our future, but out of faith in our Father. We're coming to this election day because we know that in tense moments like this, we are confronted with the question that Colossians 1.23 is raising for us. Where will we put our hope? There are people all around us in this country who have their hope in a political party. They think if we can just get the right people elected to the right offices for the right amount of time, then we can get things fixed in the way that they need to. That's where they find their hope. And that may be the temptation for each one of us as we head into election day, but Colossians 1.23 is bringing us back to that deeper question, where will we find our hope? And the answer that Paul gives us is that our hope is found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So here's what we can't forget coming into election day. Regardless of what happens at the ballot box, God is still sovereign. Regardless of what political movement comes into power in our country, the movement of the Holy Spirit is still active. 
Regardless of who becomes president, Jesus is still king. And here's what that means for us, central family. Our hope is not in a donkey. It's not in an elephant. Our hope is in the lion of the tribe of Judah. We don't need to lose sight of that this election season. Paul calls us to an unshifting hope in an unchanging gospel. And look at the way that this text finishes, because as he moves through it, what we're going to find is that he speaks of the way that this unchanging gospel is at work in the world. He tells us that this gospel was proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, was made a minister. He's showing us that there are two sides of the gospel both a universal dimension of the gospel and a personal dimension of the gospel. Notice the way he speaks of it, this universal dimension that it is proclaimed in all creation. This word proclaim that we'll see come up over and over again in the next portion of Colossians means to preach, to herald, to make known that God has sent forth his messengers to declare his truth to a lost world. And that it's going forth in all creation. This is likely hyperbole. Paul knows that the gospel hasn't reached every corner of the globe yet, but he is speaking of its power and of God's intention that God has designed the gospel to go forth to all people so that they might know Jesus in a saving way. It is a universal gospel. So think about what he's doing here. In verses 21 and 22, he is zoomed in on the gospel reality of our reconciliation in Christ. He is speaking about how the gospel is applied to each one of us as we put our trust in Jesus through the reconciliation that we have in Christ. But now he takes a moment and he zooms back out. He shows us the big picture. This is a universal gospel that is being proclaimed in all creation. And what Paul is showing us is it's intended for everyone. It is calling everyone to repentance and salvation in Jesus. But it's not just a universal gospel, it's a personal gospel. What Paul is making known to us here is that the gospel of Jesus Christ is not just designed to go to every corner of creation, it's also designed to go to every corner of our hearts. That when we meet Jesus, that when we surrender our lives to him, When we begin to trust him as our savior, our Lord, and our treasure, it changes us in a personal way. And isn't that exactly what happened to Paul back on that Damascus road? He tells us here in verse 23, I, Paul, who am a minister, I became a minister, but that happened in a moment. He is heading off to Damascus to persecute Christians, but when he encounters Jesus, Jesus changes everything for him. There is a personal effect of the gospel. He not only rescues Paul, he sends him on his mission and he gives Paul the same calling that Paul is giving you and me today. To continue in the faith. To press on in the midst of hardship. And think about the way that Paul modeled that for us. We see that glimpse of perseverance in his own life. Think about this man. He was mocked. He was beaten. He was stoned. He was shipwrecked. He was left for dead. And yet Paul pressed on. He continued in the faith. He remained stable and steadfast, and he invites the Colossians and you and I into that same reality this morning. 
Back in March, there was a man named Jesse Katayama who had saved up a lot of his own money in Japan to take the trip of a lifetime. He boarded a plane and he headed all the way to South America to the country of Peru. It was his goal to go and see one of the most amazing landmarks in the world known as Machu Picchu. It's set up in the mountaintops of Peru and the combination of natural beauty and historical artifacts that are there attract multitudes of tourists from around the world throughout the year to come and to see it. And when Jesse landed in Peru, he had his ticket secured and he was ready to go there to visit this landmark the next day when COVID advanced around the world in such a way that they shut down the entrance to this park. And he wasn't able to see it. Now put yourself in Jesse's shoes. You've saved up all this money to go. You've spent so much money on your flight and on your lodging and now you don't know when, if ever, you're going to be able to see this. If you're anything like me, what I would have been trying to do is figure out how can I get home as soon as possible before it's too late. They're shutting down flights. There are uncertainties about my ability to travel. I better act now so that I can get to safety. But that's not what he did. You know what he did instead? For the last seven months, he has rented a room in someone's home. He made a commitment that the journey he started, he wanted to see to its finish. And so he began to live amongst the people in a place he's never been, in a language he likely hardly knows, and began to interact with the locals. He aspires to be a boxer, so he taught some of the younger kids their boxing. And he decided that the only way he was going to leave is if he got to see what he had come for or he ran out of money. Well, the problem is after seven months, the money was beginning to run low and he was beginning to lose hope about whether or not he would ever see it until one day the minister of culture for the entire nation of Peru heard Jesse's story. And he made a special exception for him to recognize his perseverance, his endurance in this time of uncertainty. And he had the opportunity just a few weeks ago to enter into Machu Picchu and to see this landmark as the only tourist allowed. What was normally surrounded by a multitude of people, he added all to himself. He was rewarded for his steadfastness. He received that which he came for because he saw the journey all the way to the finish. And what we notice here in Colossians 1.23 is that's the picture of the gospel that Paul is calling us to. To continue in the faith, to be stable and steadfast, to not shift away from the hope of the gospel, to be committed to the conclusion of the journey because we know that the gospel of Jesus Christ is real and that God in Christ, by the power of his spirit, has promised to hold us fast and to equip us to press on in the faith. That's why it's so fitting that we're coming this morning to the Lord's Supper. In just a minute, when we enter into our response song, we're going to come to the tables in the front and in the back and in the middle to get the elements. And as we do that, we're being reminded that one of God's gifts to us, as we seek to press on in the faith, is the gift of the rhythms of the local church, just like the Lord's Supper. We gather once a month to take this family meal, not just to hear Christ's word proclaimed through preaching, but to taste his word through these elements. And we want to invite you to be a part of that. If you know Christ and you've been baptized, if you're a part of the family of faith, this is a family meal for you. 
And so when the song's playing, we just want to invite you to make your way to these uh, tables. You can grab your elements, even pick some up for the rest of the people that you're sitting with. But before we do that, in just a moment, I'm going to pray. But I want us to remember what the scripture calls us to. When Paul speaks in 1 Corinthians 11 about what we're doing in the Lord's Supper, he gives us this instruction to examine ourselves when he says, 1 Corinthians 11, verses 27 and 28, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Let's pray together. Fathers, we come to you right now. We're coming with our lives spread open to you, asking that your spirit would examine our hearts that you would convict us of sin, that you would draw us to repentance, that you would help us to see what you've done for us in Christ. And as we prepare now to take this bread as one body, remind us that it signifies the broken body of Christ. And I pray that you would ready our hearts to taste of that shed blood, to be reminded of the sacrifice that we've experienced through salvation in Jesus. And may we stand united in Christ as a church by the power of your spirit so that our hearts might remain fixed on Christ in whose name we pray. Amen. In just a minute, we're going to stand and sing but I, and I invite you to the tables, but I also want to remind you there will be ministers here at the front. If you want to know more of what it looks like to have salvation in that unchanging gospel, we're here to share it with you. Or maybe you're ready to take a step towards membership with our church, just like some did in the first service. We invite you into that. Or if you need someone to pray with you, in whatever way the Spirit is leading us in this moment, let's stand and respond in this time.